here was uh, 2.4 trillion uh, US dollars and uh, about half uh, uh, related to property sector. So the property, uh, the offshore financing is drying up. The, uh, the, the rollovers are becoming very difficult. So you have this contagion uh, via offshore component. So then you have these more property developers uh, will have a liquidity problem down, uh, uh, in, uh, in the coming months. So I think that's what concerns the government. So the government wants to, the, to assure the offshore market that uh, uh, it's not uh, the whole sector. But I think that the, uh, the, 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 it's probably the whole sector is at a tipping point. Uh, China's property cycle has been way overextended over the last uh, 15 years or so. Uh, it's really uh, rolling over. It's got, the government has decided the property, if they let it go, the property uh, uh, market will bring down the country. So there maybe it's not too late to uh, to uh, to stop it now. So I think this is where we are. Okay, well that's uh, a very dire warning for us. But uh, let's see how that develops. Thank you very much, Andy. That's Independence Economist Andy Shi. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio Three. Let's take a final look at the markets for this morning. First of all, in stocks, the ASX 200 in Australia up 0.1 percent. Nikkei 225 in Japan, down 0.1%. Futures markets indicating a gain of half a percent for the Hang Seng. Gold is a little bit firmer, $1,770 an ounce. And Brent crude oil also up about half a percent at the moment at $85.33 a barrel. Thank you for listening this morning. Stay tuned for Back Chats with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse in a moment. The weather forecast for today, dry with sunny periods. Uh, maximum temperatures of about 26 degrees during the day. They're mainly fine tomorrow, cloudier on Wednesday, cooler with a few showers in the latter part of this week. It's 22 degrees right now and 74% relative humidity. It's 8.32, here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. A leading doctor says it's important for people to get their seasonal flu vaccination despite admitting that the risk of a flu epidemic was low as everyone was wearing masks. Dr Choi Kin, the head of the Medical Association, said the risk of death was much higher and the symptoms of pneumonia much more severe if a patient contracted both flu and COVID-19 at the same time. But he said the current health measures in the community meant the risk of this happening was now low. Dozens of people are missing following severe flooding and landslides in the southern Indian state of Kerala, which are known to have killed more than 20 people. Days of heavy rain have swollen rivers, washing entire homes away. Video shared on social media showed buses and cars submerged in floodwaters. The Army, Navy and Air Force are assisting with flood relief and rescue operations. This resident said she'd lost everything. The hill near us collapsed in a landslide. There has been a lot of damage and loss. The house has gone. Children have gone. All that has happened. The water entered our homes. That's when they moved us. Severe flooding is becoming more common in the region. In 2018, almost 500 people were killed in floods in Kerala. 
Security officers in Haiti say a group of Christian missionaries and their families have been kidnapped near the capital, Port-au-Prince. The details are unclear, but local officials say at least 15 women, men and children, mainly Americans, were abducted by an armed gang from a bus as it was travelling from an orphanage. Jacqueline Charles is a journalist for the Miami Herald newspaper. It's by a gang that is called in Creole Katsa Maozo, 400 Maozo. This is a gang that operates on the roads leading to the border with the Dominican Republic um, outside of Port-au-Prince. It's notorious for um, kidnappings, and what they do is carloads and busloads. That is their modus operandi. The United Nations says Syrian government and opposition delegations meeting in Geneva have agreed to start drafting reforms to the country's constitution. The delegations, which will hold talks over the next week, are meant to draw up a basic law that would lead to elections. They've met six times in two years without making any significant progress. The last effort to amend the constitution ended with the, U- the UN envoy, Guy Pedersen, saying the government's side had rejected both his and the opposition's proposals. There'll be more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host this morning is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. On uh, today's programme, a minimum size for newly built apartments and later on we'll be looking at uh, China's latest space mission. The Development Secretary Michael Wong says a new requirement may be introduced to ensure that newly built private apartments are at least 210 square feet in area. The aim would be to prevent developers from building ever smaller studio flats or nano flats as they're known. A study on flat sizes will be launched soon and the new measure could be introduced as soon as next year. Mr Wong says it's part of a plan to give residents a chance to have more living space or living bigger in Hong Kong 2030+. After 9.15, we'll be looking at the uh, latest uh, mission to the space station, which is still under construction. Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And uh, joining us uh, this morning in our studio is uh, Si Wing Ching, the founder and chief executive of the Centerline Group. And also on the line, we have uh, Lao Chung Kong, who's the Managing Director for Valuation and Advisory Services in Asia for Colliers. Um, Mr Shi, uh, if we can start with you, thanks very much for joining us. So, so what do you think about this proposal to um, impose a, a limit on the smaller size of new apartments of 210 square feet? Uh, Hong Kong is a capitalist society. Uh, we use the market mechanism to deliver to uh, uh, share our resources. So uh, it's not easy for government to put a measure on the size of the flat without increasing the land supply. Uh, And the price at this moment is so high. If you uh, make each flat bigger, it will become more unaffordable for the people. I don't think it's the preference of the developer to build more flats. It's the buyer who cannot afford it, so it gets smaller and smaller. Mr. Xi, isn't there something upside down in that <laughs> argument? <laughs> respect? Because 
we could make flats affordable if we made them 10 square feet. But then people wouldn't be able to lie down in them. They'd have to stand up. If it's 10 square feet, no one will buy it. You, no can, buy it. Right. you can't even put your small bed inside. But it's affordable. I think your main point here is mm. that we would have to lower the implied imputed land value within the price of a flat mm -hmm. in order to make a decent-sized flat affordable, mm -hmm. which has big implications for government revenue. Uh, I think uh, in the coming future, land supply will increase very fast. Yes. Uh, and it takes time uh, when we can build bigger flats when the price level drops but not at this moment. So what, what sort of timeline are we looking at then, do you mm. think? I think uh, for the coming three to five years, nothing can be done. Mm. But we, we seem <laughs> to say that every, every five years. <laughs> so That's the trouble. So, if it, so well, M Mike just raised a hypothetical example of, a, of an apartment of 10 square feet, and of course nobody would buy it. So w w what is this? How, how small can these nano flats go? I mean, there's w one in two moon was 128 square feet, which is that's difficult to even fit anything in there, isn't it? Uh, at least I think now the flat selling in the private sector is bigger than the minimal size of public housing. For public housing, I think it's around 13.5 uh, square meter for each person. But mm. in uh, private sector, most smaller flats will close to uh, 20 square meter. And the other, well, there are two other, at least two other aspects of this that intrigue <laughs> me a lot. Mm. So, Thank you for putting the subject on the agenda today. One is this would have implications for family size yes. as well. Where people are saying, oh, our birth rate is declining. The average number of children per woman is now below the replacement mm. level. Well, frankly, if the flats are getting smaller and smaller, mm. a, a couple can barely get in it themselves. Where's the incentive to have a, a child to take up more of the space? But now a lot of smaller flats are not taken by family, but just by a single person. Yes, and that means we're going to reduce the marriage rate as well. Um, so so that, that's the central government's concern. Uh, they want to build bigger flats, then more people can get married and have children. The other thing and I sort of lob these hand grenades into the discussion. Mm -hmm. But if we're saying uh, setting a minimum size for some of the flats, does this also have implications for the relative number of those flats in a development? So that we need to have some of 100, 210 square feet. We'd have to guarantee that there will be some of 400 and something square feet. Some mm. of 600 and something square mm. feet, so that we'd have a relative problem within the same development. Uh, and the other point is that even you have a minimum size for a flat built by the developer, but the purchaser can subdivide it into smaller ones and let it out to uh, uh, fulfill the demand in the market. Right. Well, let's ask uh, Lao Chung Kong of uh, the property firm Colliers. Good morning to you. Good morning. So, well, it, I'm and Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Uh, is, is this a practical proposal to put uh, to put a limit on the size of uh, of, of uh, you know small flats? I think it is both 
practical and uh, necessary right now. I mean, in the light of the current market situation, I mean, for some of the nano fat, it has been so small. Yeah. Um, um, what, what about the argument that uh, Xi Ching was uh, saying before that uh, uh, you, you, you know um, it's going to increase if you, if, if, if you you know if you compel developers to build bigger flats, uh, it's going to cost more and uh, it'll be they'll be less affordable to for the buying public. I think I think we we need to look at I mean uh, history again to see why I mean the current situation have I mean um, um, arisen I mean so far. I would put the, the blame onto the stamp duty measures to start with. Because before the government introduced the stamp duty measures, I mean, um, the, the unit size in the private sector has gradually increased over the years. That means, I mean, developers have been building, I mean, bigger flats in order to suit the market demand. But after the government have introduced the stamp duty measures, the cost for transfer of um, units become much, much bigger. And that we have seen a, a, a huge shrinkage in the transaction volume. And in the market in Hong Kong, we have a lot of small flats. That means those are 30, 40 square meters sellable type of um, space in the market. But the supply of these units in the secondary market have reduced a lot. And that given the, the increase in price level, I mean, developers need to reduce the, the lump sum of the units as such. That's why I, I would say that, I mean, this is, uh, I would say, a chicken and egg situation. The government still maintain its stamp duty measures and that the, the developer have to react accordingly. But if the government say, I mean, we are going to in, introduce a minimum size, no matter it's 210 or 215, whatever, that then the developers will react accordingly. They will build bigger than the minimum size. Mm-hmm. And actually, it, within the market, you can see that there's still a variety of units to be produced I mean, by the developers. Even for those sort of congested, I mean, urban areas, some units, I mean, would be tiny, but there are still some units which are reasonable. And in those sort of, I mean, good location, developers are still big, building very big houses there. Mm-hmm. So I think the market will react, will react accordingly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this this kind of minimum size, um, one one option is yes, the government should set a minimum size. One option is we leave it completely to the private sector and demand to sort itself out. But it seems to me if we are heading down this road, it has huge implications for land supply. Um, I don't think so, because um, mm. the government um, over the years have been monitoring the, the land supply by using some sort of standard size. Right. In the public sector, I mean, in the past, uh, we have, um, the government had been using a, a, a prime unit of 75 square meters gross to do its land supply forecast. And that's why if you look at what this, I mean, 75 square meter means is that um, it converts back to uh, by using a ratio uh, of such a unit to accommodate 2.6 persons, I mean, on average. The, the sellable unit, I mean, the, the sellable um, area ratio of around 0.8, then it would be translated to be around 200 square feet or marginally be, to, uh, below 200 square feet for each person as a sort of standard for the land supply, I mean, um, assessment. That's why if, even if the government right now is going to impose those, introduce 215 square feet, it is only marginally or 10% higher than what they have been using in the past for the land supply, I mean, forecast. 
So I think, I mean, it would not affect, I mean, um, the, the government forecast at all. But what we have seen right now is that um, we have seen more units coming out from, from, the, from the public sector, but they are of much smaller average size these days. Okay, so why then does this perception of land shortage and housing shortage? I, I think the perception is real because, I mean, uh, buyers uh, and tenants, that they are not easy to find space within the market. Hmm. And that's why we definitely need to have uh, more supply. But I think in, in reality, we also need the supply to be meaningful. Because for these sort of nine, um, nano flats, I mean, if there are some 130 square feet, 150 square feet, they're just too small. And that they, this is not, I mean, healthy living space and that they will be, I mean, able for, for long-term stay at all. Uh, okay, should just say at this point, because we're using two different uh, measurements here, we're talking about uh, uh, square feet and square metres, but uh, just to clarify for uh, listeners who may not be aware, so so um, uh, let, let me see, so one square metre is 10 square feet roughly, correct? Yes. Is that correct? 10.76. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 10.76, okay, okay, so, so 20 square metres is... Uh, What's that going to be? 200 and 270 square feet. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So, Mr. Lau, then, if there were to be um, a minimum size uh, for uh, apartments, what would you, you know, where would you put it? I think, I mean, what what I have listened so far or read, I mean, in the newspaper so far, I mean, the many suggestions would be, I mean, so-called focusing upon 200 square feet, 215 square feet. I think this is doable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, now, of course, uh, in the policy address, we had the announcement about the the northern metropolis, um, and we, we've already for several years now been getting used to the concept concepts of the what was originally the East Lantau metropolis was then uh, sort of renamed the Lantau Tomorrow Vision. So, um, looking ahead to well to twenty thirty plus, as Michael Wong put it, um, um, you know, can we look forward to a period there where we have, you know. Uh, not just adequate, but um, you know, a very good supply of housing, and people will indeed be able to live in um, you know much larger apartments. Uh, Mr. Shi, what do you think? Uh, of course, if, if the metropolis plan come to real, uh, this one is actually uh, three hundred square kilometer. That is three percent, thirty percent of the Hong Kong total area. At this moment, only 25% of the Hong Kong area is developed. That means this new area is bigger than the original developed area. Uh, if it came true, everyone can live uh, as big as a double of our present area. So everyone will be very happy. No one will build small flat. How how the mm -hmm. flat sizes in Hong Kong compared to those just over the border in Shenzhen? Uh, in Hong Kong, most of the flats is around, I think, 500 square feet or 50 square meter. Right. But in China, most of them is over a thousand square feet or 100 square meter. So we are only half. 
mm. of the space what mainlander are living yeah and uh, we're supposed to be yeah. the wealthy society yes and in we- general our gdp per capita is much higher than in china mm. so the uh, hong people in hong kong have no difficulties to pay the construction costs it is only the land value we can't afford and all the land value go to the government for the new land so if the government is not willing to lower the land value or they still rely so much on the uh, land sales revenue they have no way to change the situation it's land sales revenue for the government and developers profit margin yes in the final Hmm. i think in most part of the world uh, in big cities there's no problem in land supply only in the central area because uh, the lands are in most cases owned by the people not by the government when there is a need for new housing they will convert their land use to housing but in hong kong all the land are in the hand of the government and the government will not easily let you to develop your land like the land in the new territories owned by the native hong kong people before the british come to hong kong this land has no limit they can use their land for cultivation they can build their house on the land if you go back to the original situation then the new territory will have a lot of land supply for building house but of course it won't come back (laughs) well we're not going back to 1898 are we yeah i i I would like to echo what mrs she has just said i mean because i've got some figures in hand right now which i can share i mean with the the audience Mm. Yeah, because if we look at, I mean, in Hong Kong and versus, I mean, Shenzhen and other major cities in in, um, in Asia, Hong Kong, I would use the word, is the worst. Because according to, to, to the 2016, I mean, uh, by census calculation, the median average, I mean, um, living space that we have in Hong Kong is around 161 square feet only. Mm-hmm. Versus, I mean, um, Shenzhen, as you mentioned, is 300 square feet. Mm-hmm. Even when comparing to Tokyo, a very, I mean, densely populated, I mean, city, they are at 210. Uh, whereas, um, whereas, I mean, Singapore, they are at 270. You can see that we are way behind. Yeah. And, and that's why, yeah. I mean, that, that's, I mean, Mr. Xi's suggestion that once we have been able to have um, the North, Northern uh, Metropolis and the um, Lantau uh, or the CBD free, we should be able to have the opportunity to have slightly bigger press on average for us, yeah. Mm-hmm. Not slightly, much, much bigger. Much bigger. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, sure. And uh, yeah, and, and also I think uh, yeah, thanks for those figures. And I believe in Singapore, the average sorry, uh, in uh, Shanghai, the average living space per person is two hundred and sixty square feet. So mm. so they're also well well ahead of uh, Hong Kong. Um, just on actually, just on public housing, because we had a, a, an email here from a listener, Vic, uh, wanting to know um, uh, what's the smallest uh, size of, uh, of public housing apartments. I, 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 believe, I believe with public housing, it's based on the number of occupants, and and it's mm-hmm. uh, a, a four-person flat is currently a bit less than four hundred square feet. Is that? Uh, 
Yes, uh, the uh, average living mm. space for one person is around 30.5 square meter, mm -hmm. and only 0.5 percent of the public housing tenant live in a flat smaller than 5.5 square meter, which mm -hmm. is considered as the congested flat. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so most of them are living uh, over 100 square feet now. So this mm -hmm. proposal, if it goes mm -hmm. ahead, would it have implications for the size of public housing flats? No, it's completely two systems. <laughs> One housing market, two systems. <laughs> Right, but, 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 I, yeah. but I think I mean the, the government uh, needs to have the soft courage or the or the or the focus I mean to increase the size both in the private sector and the public sector. Mm -hmm. So I think this is, should be the right way I mean to move ahead, and also this has been reflected uh, in the two field plus study already, and that's why it's, it's left to the government to implement this. Yeah. But at this moment, the top priority for government is to increase the supply in public housing, not the private sector. Because in the coming 10 years, the supply in uh, subsidizing housing is, I think, around 370,000 units. But for private sector, it's only around 100,000 uh, units per year. Uh, but uh, 100 for 10 years, only around uh, 10,000 per year. So uh, their concern is in public housing, not in private sector. So this policy for minimum size is inconsistent with the government policy. Why at this moment they yeah. want to address this matter? I don't understand. Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, because I, I sit on the um, Housing Authority as a member, what, what I have, I mean, been seeing is that for these sort of nano flats, I mean, they are not attractive to the applicants. Um, even for single person, I mean, these, these I mean, units are, I would say, I mean, would not be, should not be the, pi, uh, the priority for the Hong Kong government or the housing authority to build. And that we still need to adhere to the current standard. That means, I mean, uh, depending on the number of occupants and that they, they need to achieve at least the minimum, I mean, uh, average size that we have been looking at or using right now. And that we need to, I mean, increase this sort of, I mean, minimum in the near future to reflect the aspiration of the people in Hong Kong. Mm. Okay, well, uh, another email here from a listener, David, said, uh, says uh, flats should be at least uh, 300 uh, square feet, if not 420 square feet. Uh, what's more, uh, the government uh, psychologists and doctors uh, and the medical community know that uh, small flats cause mental illness and uh, have been for the past 30 or 40 years. And we know that at least 10% of the community have mental illness. This is just another deception. If you notice, uh, all the prices have gone up, so the smaller flats look cheaper, but they're not. And now the government has let people subdivide into small pocket-sized rooms. This is totally wrong. And the government should step in here and stop it. We need uh, big economical flats for uh, mum, dad and children and grandparents to bring families together, not split them up and create another problem. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, how about that? I mean, um, you know, flat sizes and their, and their effect on people's uh, psychology and 
general mental states. I mean, is that of course, something that we should be not wrong, thinking about? Yeah. But the reality cannot be changed just by setting a measure on the flat size. Uh, you, you need to have real supply to solve the problem. So what is the answer? The first thing we should do is substantially increase the land, land supply, supply and carve it up. Uh, if you cannot amount. increase the land supply, you increase the plot ratio of the present land. Then you can have supply very fast. Because you've got to have bigger flats to mm. push off mental illness. <laughs> yes. Mm. Okay, mm. whether they're private or, or public. Mm. Mm. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, uh, Mr. Lau. Would, yeah, yeah I that? agree. I mean, the, the, the issue is, I mean, uh, first of all, uh, on the land supply. Uh, and the second issue is that we need to reactivate the second-hand market in Hong Kong. As I mentioned, I mean, in the past, I mean, before the introduction of the stamp duty, developers in the public sector have been building bigger flats in order to suit the changing houses, I mean, demand. Because, I mean, when uh, a couple, for example, I mean, um, they have lived in their, their own home for, say, 10, 15 years, they accumulate their wealth and then they can move up the so-called housing ladder mm. to, to acquire bigger units. But yep. right now, we have too much frictions and restrictions in the market, which mm -hmm. reduce the second-hand I mean, transaction. Okay. And that is the major problem trigger, I mean, the, the development or the trend of the nano-flats. Okay, okay, so we'll have to take, we'll have to, sorry, I'm sorry, we'll have to take a short break because we're coming up to the news at nine o'clock. Um, we'll, but we'll, re, we'll resume the conversation at three minutes past. Uh, uh, do get in touch. Um, uh, our Facebook page is Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk. A uh, quick look uh, at the weather. Uh, dry with sunny periods, uh, slightly cooler in the morning. Uh, top temperature around 26 degrees. The outlook, mainly fine tomorrow. Cloudier on Wednesday, cooler with a few showers in the latter part of this week. Currently 23 degrees, humidity 70%. <laughs> Welcome back to Backchat uh, with Mike Rouse and me, Jim Gould. And this morning we're talking about a, a proposed uh, minimum size for studio flats or, or nano flats. Um, you can let us know your thoughts. Uh, as I say, leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And we have uh, with us uh, Shi Win Ching, who's the founder and chief executive of the Centerline Group and also on the line, uh, Lao Chun Kong, who's a managing director for valuation and advisory services in Asia for the property firm uh, Colliers. Um, Mike, you wanted to pick up on a point that I we did. were going over before, the, before we broke for the news at nine. Mr. Lau uh, mentioned a very important point, this effect of the stamp duty and deterring people maybe from moving up market when they're where they maybe start off with a small flat and then their wealth in, in, increases, uh, maybe get promotion. They yeah. want to buy a bigger flat, but mm. the stamp duty changes are inhibiting that. And I, I think, thinking out loud, it must also work the other way around, that if you have a bigger flat and then your children move out and make their own home somewhere else, maybe you would be prepared to downsize to a smaller flat. Um, uh, but that also would be inhibited mm. by the stamp duty. But... Uh, it's good to see more activities in the secondary market. Turnover. Then people yes. can make their own choice. Right. Now, 
uh, it's very difficult for people who own a flat uh, to move up because they have to pay not just the down payment for their new flat and they have to pay the stamp duty until uh, they sh sell their flat later. Right. Uh, it's a big burden for them. So there's very little activity in the secondary market now. Mr. Lau? Yeah, I think I, I agree entirely with Mr. Xi. I mean, we've seen the volume have dropped a lot. And that both the trading up and the trading down that you just mentioned have been affected adversely. And that with this, I mean, huge reduction in the supply in the secondary market for, for, for purchase purpose. You can see that the, the so-called effective supply has actually shrunken a lot. And that's why, I mean, I mean, um, wow, the government has taken a good initiative I mean, to consider the imposition of a minimum size of unit. But the root of the problem still lies with the overall transaction level in Hong Kong. And mm. that we have not a uh, mm. lot going have a so-called free market as such right now because the restriction is just too huge. So, right. so that fall in the transaction level, what, what's that meant for prices in the secondary market? Um, I think, I mean, the, with the reduction in supply, mm. then you can see that if the demand still remains the same or the re demand possibly have reduced a bit, <laughs> the, mm. it will still push up the price. Mm. Because yeah. if you look, looking back, well, after the, the government have introduced the stamp duty measure, the price continued to go up. Of course, there are other issues, I mean, relating to that, the low uh, interest rate and the, the flooding of capital into the property market. But definitely the, the transaction volume tells you a lot because, I mean, ap apart from that, if without the um, stamp duty, the transaction volume should be much bigger. Well, I mean, similar to the era prior to the introduction of the various stamp duty measures. Can you see the government giving up these stamp duty restrictions? Uh, not yet. No. Not yet. <laughs> Mr. Xi instantly <laughs> agreed with you. <laughs> As a property agent in secondary market, of course, I like to see this stamp duty measure be released. But uh, only this is not enough uh, to solve the minimal size uh, problem. Uh, because the supply in secondary market it's not an actual supply because when people move out, they need to find a new place. Uh, only the supply in the primary market then can, that can affect the real situation in Hong Kong. So I think increase the supply in the sec uh, 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 primary market is more important than uh, activate right. or release the stamp duty measure. Uh, at this moment, if the price level do not come down to a more comfortable value for the government, they won't release this measure. Otherwise, the price will jump up again and they... So it's, it's the primary market, you mean new flats coming yes. on stream, and that has a flow-on effect, Yes, potentially. Hmm. Okay, one, one other I know, hand grenade to throw in here is... What about uh, elder, uh, multi-generation homes? Mm. The people uh, living with their parents and then having families while living with their parents? 
so you have three generations in the same uh, It's not building. going to happen in Hong Kong. Why we have so many subdivided flats in Hong Kong? Because our younger generation prefer to live away from their parents. They rather pay high rent than to uh, stay at their home. When I was young, I stayed with my parents. We have those fan bo chong, put in the corridor, the public place, but we still live there. So living in a divided flat is actually better than my younger days. Mr. Lau? I think there are more reasons, I mean, contributing to, to the subdivided flat um, unit situation. I mean, Mr. Xi, of course, I mean, mentioned one of those, I mean, regarding our attitude of the younger generation. But I would put the brain onto the concentration of job opportunities in the urban area. And this is where we see the concentration of people. I mean, no matter they're single persons or they're living in a family, they need to find jobs there or close to where they have been living. And this is a major issue that uh, only uh, when we have, for, for example, introduced a new CBD, no matter in Hong Soikyu or in the northern area or in Lantau, that we will be able to reverse the trend or more opportunities in the scientific research type of um, jobs, I mean, in the Long Major Loop. So this is a, um, an issue which we need to address through the work-living balance situation. Yeah. Right. So people want to be reasonably close to their work. Yes, yeah. So, um, and this is sort of, a, looking back, this explains the initial uh, unpopularity of places like Tin Shui Wai, and because mm. it took time for the job market to grow in those areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you look at the whole of the um, new territories, in particular in the north-western uh, side, apart from the uh, so-called town centre, which have a little bit of commercial activities, you don't have high-paid jobs over there. And that for our, our industrial um, areas in various new towns, they virtually die down in the sense that you don't see a lot of people are working there. Many of the spaces have been left for, I mean, warehousing uses. Um, and that's why, I mean, we, we need to reverse this of trend. We need to create more um, job opportunities in those areas where people live, no matter they have that sort of office job or other types of jobs, like, for example, elderly home um, development. These, these are the trends that we need to look at. Right. But in the past, I think we in Hong Kong care about the... Uh, business interest rather than the people's uh, interest. Because if the business is concentrated in one CDP, uh, uh, then it can, the business can be done more easily, more effectively. That is the I, advantage of Hong Kong. Uh, yeah, if you change that, yeah. into several uh, business centers, mm. then it will be difficult for those Business people. You lose the hub yeah. effect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but Mr. Xi, I think, I mean, um, I agree with the concentration of business in the CBD area for the economy of scale, the efficiency, etc. Mm. But I look back, I mean, history for the last 30 odd years. The, the government basically restrict the, the office development in those, I mean, um, new towns. They, they adhere to a very obsolete definition of industrial use, I mean, uh, of our, of our new towns. Mm-hmm. You can just do manufacturing. If you want to do office development over there, 
I mean, you need to apply for lease modification and you need to pay huge premium, land premium mm. money, I mean, for such use. <laughs> and that I still recall an incident because, I mean, um, the government had been selling commercial land uh, in the um, Fanning, um, Shanghai area. But the price was considered as too low uh, when versus, I mean, to residential. And that's why the government changed the land use from commercial to residential. So this is actually, I would say, a mistake. You you need to supply land for to suit the purpose, and you if you have more commercial space over there, then I mean, the, the business have mm. opportunity to choose. Right now, they don't have the opportunity mm. to choose. Yeah, is it is it fair to say also that Hong Kong's a little bit unusual in that uh, people don't really like commuting from 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 home to work, or or don't like spending a long time commuting? I mean, if it if it if it takes you an hour to get from home to work, that's regarded as a as a, as a, ver- a very long time uh, for for a lot of people. Um, um, whereas in other cities, you know, in 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 London, Tokyo, Seoul, it's not a long time at all. Um. Perhaps I answer first, I mean, um, it's a very complicated situation because in the past, I mean, people in Hong Kong, I mean, they've also been traveling, I mean, an hour or more than an hour or two hours for work. But I think um, the, there's a phenomenon in Hong Kong. I mean, we have possibly the longest working hours mm, in yeah. major cities. <clears throat> and that we create, I mean, um, our GDP per capita through a lot of, I mean, effort and time to be spent there. And that, I mean, if you look at, oh, uh, if you cannot be able to make use of the MTR, the transportation cost could be much higher, for example, if you are taking a taxi. So I think we need to put all these into, I mean, consideration. And we don't have, I mean, luxury homes like in the UK. If you go um, live in the suburb, you you can live in a house. But in Hong Kong, you are still living in a tiny apartment, I mean, in the new town. Hmm. Uh, In order to spread the business area to different parts of Hong Kong, I think the government need to sacrifice their land premium right. and are willing to move their own office to other parts of the city. That's right. Mr. Mm. Lau's point, isn't it? If mm. you're prepared to sell land cheaply in a, a, a more remote location, it gives companies the option of saying, well, let's save a lot on rent and create some good jobs there. But not many companies willing to move into the northern part of the new territory at this moment. Right. If you put up land for sale in the northern part, you get a less land premium. So the government will consider, oh, if I put the land close to central, I get more return. But Mr. Lau's point still applies. You haven't got jobs there, so people maybe don't want to live there. It's not so attractive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, the, the government have actually changed, I mean, its attitude already right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I participated in the two field plus, mm-hmm. I mean, planning study. Mm-hmm. When, when we look at the Hong Sui Kyu Town planning, the government have basically adopted the idea that I, we, they need to create a business nook over there. That means, I mean, would have, I mean, mm-hmm. a concentration of, I mean, office building, say, for example, I mean, eventually, I hope that it could build up to around 10 million square feet over there mm-hmm. with hotels and shopping centers to support um, the commercial activities. And that the government will relocate some of the government function over there. And this is, I would say, I mean, a start in the change of the mindset. And if we right now look at the, um, the northern metropolis, 
the same mindset will apply because we need more jobs, no matter they are on the scientific research or, or the sort of high-end, I mean, type of I mean, business. We, we need to create opportunities for these sort of business, I mean, to, to become possible over there and then attract the people to work over there. All right. What about the government office complex in Wan Chai then? Should we be looking to move big chunks of that out to other locations? We're still waiting, I mean, because that, that, that plan has been there for, uh, I think, I mean, it's more than 30 years by now. <laughs> uh, but sometimes a uh, city grows by itself, not as planter. Uh, uh, you can't just plant it, you put something here, put something there. Right. Even you uh, put an uh, uh, office building there, no one wants to move in. Well, you've also got the issue that many of those departments are interfacing with the general public, and the public want them in in a convenient location as well. Mm. It, it's not just a matter of the civil servants not being willing to work in a more remote location. But yeah, but but the government have already taken that initiative. I would say uh, mm. they move. Okay. I mean, spaces. I mean, into Zhongguan O, mm. they move spaces into Kowloon um, 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 Rest. But my comment or criticism is that they are not creating sufficient, I mean, critical mass of office buildings around them. That's why the, the office, I mean, the, the government office location have become uh, so-called, I mean, isolated. And that it have not been able to create the, the necessary, I mean, the required impact right. on mm -hmm. business concentration. So this issue needs to be corrected. Doesn't generate a follow-on effect. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, interesting topic, and I'm sure that we'll uh, be uh, pursuing it again uh, on another day. But uh, uh, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Uh, it was uh, Lao Chong Kong you heard there, who's uh, Managing Director for Valuation and Advisory Services in Asia for Colliers. And, and thank you very much to Shi uh, Wing Ching, the Founder and Chief Executive of the Centerline Group. And uh, for the last uh, 10 minutes or so of this morning's programme, we're going to be turning our attention to um, another topic, and uh, that is the, uh, the latest uh, mainland uh, space mission. Um, three astronauts uh, are now at the uh, Tiangon uh, Space Station, where they're going to remain um, for the next six months. And uh, joining us on the line, uh, we have uh, Quentin Parker, who's a professor at the Department of Physics and director of for the Space Research Laboratory at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, so, um, so what are the challenges of, uh, of the, that these astronauts will face in spending uh, six months in orbit? Yes, that's a, a very big challenge, actually, to the, to the, to the human body, uh, being weightless for six months. Uh, this has been done before, of course, in other long space missions as part of uh, various other um, space station programs in the West. This is the first time that, uh, that China will have had uh, its Taikonauts in space for such a long period. The previous uh, mission, which was three months, you saw already that when those Taikonauts touched down, that they uh, were in the seat, they were seated, they were helped. And that's because after um, uh, months without uh, proper gravity, the, you know, the body changes and it, it gets used to not having any, any, any gravity put 
pulling all the parts of the body down towards the centre of the earth. And so when you take that away, uh, the body changes. You start to lose bone mass, you start to lose calcium, and all sorts of other physiological effects start to come into play. So it does take uh, quite some time uh, for the body to reacclimatize to, to, to the normal gravity on the surface of the earth when, when you come back down. So there are lots of different kinds of, uh, of challenges there. Uh, the other challenge, of course, of being in space uh, for such a long period of time is that you've got three individual human beings, two male and one female, on board a living space about the size of a city bus, which is where they'll be having to spend their entire six months working closely together. You know, there's all sorts of issues there. Now, they're trained for it. You know, they have all the psychological tests and all, all the training to help them um, survive such a, a close environment. But nevertheless, it will inevitably bring challenges. Right. So, so it's, uh, sorry, it's physical is, as well. Is, is, that a, is, that, is that a double-decker or a single-decker that's a single decker. I mean, you know, it's, you know, the, the the dimensions is is restricted by the size of the rocket outer envelope, which is a cylinder. So, of course, you know, that's why when you you look at space stations, they all look like bits of cylinders stuck together, apart from the solar panels, which are folded and deployed out later. Is it so? We've got these physical challenges. Can anything be done to to soften these while the people are in the air? Because I'm thinking, six months is a very long time and yes. dangerous, but Going to further planets further away it would also take a long time, wouldn't it? Yes, indeed. Well, uh, we've got planets in our own solar system, of course, and, and it takes uh, uh, quite some time, months, to get to, to Mars and, and other planets, and then we're planning to go to Mars, And which is why when you go to Mars, you make sure that uh, your trajectory of your rocket and your spacecraft uh, from the Earth's orbit where it is around the sun to when it will reach Mars, that they're going to be, you know, well aligned. You don't want to launch it when uh, Mars is right around the other side of the sun to the Earth. So you have to try to play catch-up. No, so you plan these things very carefully so that the time it takes you to, to reach a, an outer system body is going to minimise the time taken. But nevertheless, yes, it does take a long period of time. And, uh, you know, which is why these uh, long-duration uh, space missions on, on the space station are very important to, to learn about exactly what happens to the human body, both physically, but also, of course, mentally, mentally. you know, and psychologically during such prolonged uh, time in isolation. Right. You know, it's not quite like being in a, in a, in a prison cell, because, you know, mentally you're not in prison, but, you know, you're inside a spacecraft and you're with people that are, you know, highly professional, extremely well-trained astronauts of excellent uh, mental and physical capacity. Right. But, but, but it's no point arriving on Mars and you're, you're too weak to stand up. Or, or you've gone a bit loopy on the way? <laughs> well, of course, what you have on board um, these uh, um, spacecraft, the space station, you have resistance exercise devices to try to right. get your, you know, your muscles working. So you've got, you know, physical, you know, there's like uh, bands which have a resistance and all sorts of things have a resistance. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you're not in gravity doesn't mean you can't have a, a physical resistance, which is why you see all these uh, exercise bikes and machines that, that you have to, to try to, to do that. Of course, I mean, there are, if you see these science fiction movies, and what you see is the artificial gravity from spinning the aircraft, spinning the spacecraft, you know, to create a centrifugal force that uh, is, uh, is, is simulating gravity. And other space um, science fiction stories you see on very long journeys, people are put into, into deep sleep, you know, they're put into hibernation. But, of course, we don't have those technologies yet. Right. Yeah. The other thing that occurred to me is that China's actually made a, a lot of advances in, in the last decade. I mean, landing a rocket on the far side of the moon, uh, yep. the, the Mars rover... 
Yep. And now this space station, and of course, absolutely, and the front all happening pa- in very quick succession. And I think uh, many observers in the West, are, I think, um, have been taken a bit by surprise, but yes. not just how quickly this has happened, but how how competently it's all been done. It's almost like textbook that I launched the other day for the Shanzu 13 was a beautiful textbook launch, and also you had very nice internal and external cameras showing you everything that was going on. You know, and you're able to dock and catch up with the uh, with the space station Tiana space station in eight hours you know it takes typically two days to, to talk with the international space station i think they're using all sorts of new uh, fancy technology including baidu technologies to to make that docking as efficient and effective as possible and also very cost effective of course you're not using as much um uh, fuel right. uh, to do these dockings so uh, they're, they're getting very accomplished i would say in very quick time uh, which is extremely impressive to somebody like me, you know, that's been a uh, keen interest in all these activities for many years. And I see from the Financial Times today, there's now concern that China's put a, a hypersonic r- rocket in, in, into space ca- capable of carrying uh, nuclear weapons. Well, I mean, we have intercontinental ballistic missiles, which are already capable of doing that, and there's not much defense against those. So the fact that you've got hypersonic uh, orbital um, uh, weapon systems being being deployed is perhaps uh, not a surprise that that is happening. What is a surprise, I think, is that China's done it and not America. Uh, and uh, I think it's because, you know, the days of China um, uh, trying to copy tech from the West, I think, are... Uh, are largely over, and now it's a question, I think, of the West looking at the tech that China is independently developing itself mm. through its um, through its systems that they've uh, put so much into technical education and, and science in, in the last 20 years, the last 10 years in particular. You know, with the, look at the universities, how they're rising up the global ranking schemes. Look at the infrastructure that they developed for science uh, around the around uh, China. And uh, you will see that they're extremely serious about all of this. And, uh, and they, in some ways, you know, it's not uh, just for military purposes, it's for civilian and, you know, and commercial and for the benefit of humanity, then there's nothing wrong with that per se. Every nation has a right to, to develop its own uh, technology and science uh, uh, as best it can. Uh, during the current mission, I think there are, there are two or three uh, spacewalks planned, uh, and, and it's expected that uh, uh, Wang Yaping, who is the, uh, the, the female Email, member of the crew, is yeah. going to be the first Asian woman to do, to do a spacewalk. Um, what, what, what are the sort of, um, you know, the technical challenges of, uh, of actually going outside the spacecraft and, uh, and doing a spacewalk? Well, you know, it's 50 years or so since the very first spacewalk, and um, uh, she will be the first Chinese lady to accomplish this, but she's been, she's had an enormous amount of training uh, to do this. I mean, you know, what they normally do to simulate uh, a spacewalk is that you go, in, you go into a kind of spacesuit slash um, diving suit, and you go and do it in water, and you weigh down, and, you, uh, and it's extremely strenuous, and it's very hard to do. Um, and so this is, she's had lots of many, many hours of training for this. So she's uh, more than capable of doing that. Now, I'm not sure um, uh, what her job will be in particular on, 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 the, on the particular spacewalk that she'll be doing. I can't find those details. But um, she's certainly very well trained for it. It's certainly been done by, by many uh, astronauts and taikonauts and cosmonauts now. And, and so she's certainly not the first to, to be doing a spacewalk, but the first Chinese lady to be doing a spacewalk. One thing that occurs to me based on what you were saying earlier is that some in the West must be amazed by the speed at which this has all happened. Because I think so, yeah. Ten, it, ten it, years ago, if you'd said... Um, sorry, yeah, I cut you off. Please carry on. Yeah, I was just going to say that ten years ago, if you listed these things out and said China will have done all of these by 2021, 
people would have locked you up and said, yeah. you're demented. I think a lot of people in the West still have visions of China as uh, hundreds of thousands of people cycling around on, on roads empty of cars. I mean, I've been into China many times before COVID in the last uh, five years at Hong Kong U, and then, and, you know, there's more cars than you can poke a stick at now, but and very, very busy traffic. But also all, all the trappings of a, of, of a developed uh, society, as far as I could see from all the cities I, I visited. So, yes, it's, it's, it's not just happening in space. It's happening, you know, on the ground and in these amazing cities they've built from scratch and all the infrastructure that goes with it, all the public transport, the bullet trains everywhere. It's astonishing. So uh, it took me, um, took my breath away, frankly, the, you know, when I saw all these... Um, at Honcho railway station. It's like being in, a, in an airport, not a railway station. And all these bullet trains lined up in a row, like with perspective taking them to, you know, so many platforms. It was, yes. <laughs> I got some great photographs of it, but it was uh, amazing. Mm. So, yes, I mean, I think, you know, people in the West, when they say, oh, well, they've just gone to the moon, but they've gone to the backside of the moon. That's never been done. They've also brought back moon rock only the third country ever to do so. I mean, the Russians brought back a few tens of grams of moon rock, and, of course, America, many kilograms, but the, uh, China's brought back uh, more than a few grams. It's brought back a fair amount of rock from its missions, and also uh, rover first time on Mars, very complicated, very difficult to do, did it first time, and did it what seems to be perfectly so far. So everything that... I think they do a lot of testing, you know, and they're very secretive about the testing until it all works, and then they let people know because they're confident in their capacity and in their technology right. now. And so, you know, they have, you see this confidence coming through in the live streaming that you get now of everything. Mm. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, and it seems to be very well based in, in the reality of what they're actually accomplishing. That's right. think in it's pretty gonna... short order, you would have to say. If, if they think it's going to fail, you won't be able to watch it on TV. Well, I mean, we, you know, we saw the, the, the Challenger disaster unfold on TV, yes. and I, I remember with horror at seeing that. I mean, space travel is inherently extremely dangerous. You're putting yourself on the, on the you know, the top of basically a huge bomb, you know, a big massive rocket full of fuel that could explode. <laughs> you know, and it's liquid propellant in, 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 in the Chinese uh, rockets, and so you're, you're going up on, into space, and it's always dangerous. It's a, you know, number of failures and rocket launches, even for satellites, is not insignificant. You know, there's always a risk involved in, in spaceflight, even with the, the Jeff Bezos and, you know, and the Elon Musks of this world. Um, that's still an inherently dangerous thing. Okay, well, a really interesting uh, topic. Uh, uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us uh, on the programme this morning. Uh, that's Quentin Parker there, who's a professor at the Department of Physics and director of space of the Space Research Laboratory at the University of Hong Kong. Um, right, now, just before we go to the uh, news summary and morning brew, uh, let's say uh, thank you, as always, to our great producer, Yuki Jung, and uh, thank you very much to you, Mike. This is such a great show today. It's so interesting. <laughs> OK, a quick look at the weather. Um, it's going to be uh, dry with sunny periods, so slightly cooler in the morning. Uh, top temperature will be around 26 degrees during the day. Moderate to fresh north to northeasterly winds. The outlook, uh, mainly fine tomorrow. Cloudier on Wednesday, cooler with a few showers in the latter part of this week. Currently 23 degrees, humidity 70%. There are always adversities in life. If you're emotionally distressed because of family conflict, debt, marital or interpersonal problems, and you don't know how to deal with the situation, please call Caritas Family Crisis Support Center's 24-hour crisis hotline 18288 to talk about it. A bend in the road is not the end of the road. If you're willing to seek help, you will find a way. Now the new summary with Vicky Wong. 
The head of the medical association says it's important for people to get their flu, seasonal flu vaccination, despite admitting that the risk of a flu epidemic was low as everyone was wearing masks. Dr Choi Kin said the risk of death was much higher and the symptoms of pneumonia much more severe if a patient contracted both flu and COVID-19 at the same time. Dozens of people are missing following severe flooding and landslides in the southern Indian state of Kerala, which are known to have killed at least 26 people. Days of heavy rain have swollen rivers, washing entire homes away. The Army, Navy and Air Force are assisting with flood relief and rescue operations. And reports from the United States say the government doesn't know the location of a group of American Christian missionaries and their families who were kidnapped in Haiti on Saturday. 16 U.S. citizens and one Canadian were visiting an orphanage when they were abducted by an armed gang. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, great interpreter of Beethoven. As well. Oh, so shy, quiet, and retiring doggy council co founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is really for adults, it's not really for kids. Good morning. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. Decide for what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. Inter- interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is the morning brew. Good morning to you and welcome to a brand new week here on Morning Brew. Well, it's almost time to see the donning of Arctic wear in Hong Kong as the mercury has plummeted to a shivery 20 Celsius. This, of course, means it's perfect rugby weather. So, Hong Kong Rugby's CEO, Robbie McRobbie, will be with you at 1010 for all the important weekly rugby news. Tracy Brown, after that, we're going to New York to catch up with our New York correspondent, all the latest from the Big Apple, including narrowly missing a Hollywood techie strike. And apparently that's going to link to what we were talking about last week. After 11.30 today, we're going to meet Welsh saxophone star, the multi-award winning soloist Joshua Jones. He's in town to perform with the City Chamber Orchestra of Hong Kong in a musical trip back in time to 1920s Berlin. Mm. 